Yes, Lord. <laughs> the Lord sounds awfully a lot like our pastor, Matt. I don't know what's going on there. Uh, interesting. So this morning, uh, we, we officially begin our sermon series called Journey to the Cross. And we're going to begin in Luke chapter 10 with a story that's quite familiar to all of us, probably the parable of the Good Samaritan story that's so familiar. And you're kind of like, what could this guy possibly say that I don't already know? And probably not much, I'll just say that. But I came across some interesting things. Uh, I'm going to be referencing some of Martin Luther King uh, Jr. He had a sermon, a little sermonette on this uh, back in the 1960s that caught my attention and just thought, this this could just preach today. I could just read that and just sit down. Um, I'm not going to because there's some examples that don't quite, aren't quite apples and apples. Uh, but it's quite an interesting thing that I'll be reflecting on a little bit throughout. Uh, I had a seminary professor who I'll also reference who wrote, literally wrote a book or the book on parables. It's like this thick um, on the parables. And he said about this story, he said this story, this is a scholarly book. And here's what he said. He said, this story is annoying because it won't let us avert our eyes. I thought that was so profound. That a story in the Bible, the way that Jesus tells it, is so radical that it's annoying because it begs the question, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? So here we are in Luke chapter 10. I'm going to be reading the text as I preach, but if you want to follow along, it's Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25 through 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, and, and any of you who have uh, taught students or, or done anything with students, you probably have found yourself at some point in teaching. Maybe you've used the phrase, you've said to kids, you've encouraged people to say, there are no bad questions. Have you done this? Have you heard this? There's no bad questions until a bad question comes up. Uh, I, I, in confirmation classes, you know, I teach confirmation. I've done this now for 12, 13 years and uh, we always, at the beginning of the class, I remember uh, the senior pastor in particular who had been teaching it for 25, 30 years would always tell the kids, you know, you've always heard teachers say there's no bad questions, but I want to tell you there are bad questions. So think before you ask. That was our warning to them. Because often they would ask these questions that were just strange or just trying to, to get at things that weren't in the text. And it wasn't to discourage them from probing deeper. No, farthest from the case. We just wanted to avoid the kind of rabbit trails that you go down, especially with junior hires. We're just like, I don't know what Minecraft has to do with Genesis. What are we doing here? But somehow we're talking about Minecraft. Anyway, those are the kind of things with junior hires. So I just want to say that there are... There are bad questions. There are bad questions. So let's look at the context, the setup of this story, because oftentimes I think we just jump to the parable of the Good Samaritan rather than looking at what's really going on in this story. How did Jesus get to the place where he told the story of the Good Samaritan? So Luke begins, he says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now people go back and forth in, uh, in looking at some commentaries with the scholarly works on what this test is really about. Is this a test? There's a number of ways to read this. You could say he is testing Jesus and then like, I want to trap you. I want to get you to say something that's going to get you in trouble. This is an expert in the law. That means this guy knows the Old Testament through and through. He knows everything about the Old Testament, or at least he's trying to understand everything about the Old Testament. He's an expert. And so he's, is he testing Jesus to see what Jesus knows? The other side of this could be 
that this is just a dialogue and exchange which happened regularly between rabbis, teachers of the law. And he's just trying to see how do you read it. This is how I read it. How do you read it? So, so the test, it might not be that he has ill intentions. It might just be that he's asking Jesus, I want to see how you interpret this. How you're supposed to be this teacher, you're on the scene, you're causing a stir. How do you understand what it means from the Bible, from the Old Testament Scriptures? What does it mean? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, again, Jesus being a rabbi working within this tradition, doesn't just say, well, do X, Y, and Z, and then you're good. He flips it back on him and says, what is written How do you read it? He basically flips it back and says, you're an expert in the law. You tell me. You're supposedly an expert. I want to know before I show my cards, why don't you tell me how you understand it? What does it mean to inherit eternal life? And this is not, by the way, this is not the bad question. We're not there yet. The bad question is not, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a pretty honest question. I just want to know. I want to know how to follow God. I want to know uh, how I can live forever. I, I want to understand that. That's a, that's a good question. We're okay so far. And Jesus' question, how do you read it? That's not the bad question either. But Jesus, he can ask whatever he wants. So he's Jesus. So he says, how do you read it? What's written in the law? The man answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus responds, well done. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Simple enough, right? End. End of story. You wanted to know what it means to inherit eternal life? Well, what do you think? The guy says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. End of story. Well done. You did it. But for this guy, it's just not good enough. And this is why the the testing language, the trapping language, uh, Luke says here that looking to justify himself, ooh, that's a scary word right there. This man, the expert in the law, seeking to justify his own thoughts on the matter, seeking to justify his own position, asks a really bad question. Who is my neighbor? Now, why is this a bad question? Why? See, at the heart of the question in seeking to justify himself, what he's looking for is limitations, boundaries. How much do I really have to do? How far do you think I really have to go? Who really is my neighbor, Jesus? Who? Certainly not the Roman centurions. Certainly not the tax collectors. You're not talking about prostitutes, are we? You're not talking about notorious sinners. Those aren't my neighbors. Wink, wink. Right, Jesus? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, love some of your neighbors, right? We can all agree on that. He's not talking about our Muslim neighbors. He's not talking about our undocumented neighbors, our homeless neighbors, our rich, greedy neighbors, our neighbors who refuse to keep our lawn manicured. You better not be talking about them, Jesus. Because now you've gone too far. The question, who is my neighbor? Again, my seminary professor who said the text is annoying, that this story is annoying. He said it's a question that ought not to be asked. 
And the reason he says that is because throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, there are, if this guy is an expert in the law, he knows what the law says. And he's seeking commentary on the law. And the law is pretty broad. It says, love the foreigner, love the stranger, love the widow, love the orphan, love those who are unloved. The law is pretty broad in terms of who we're supposed to law, and he's seeking to narrow it. To say, certainly in our context today, God doesn't want me to love these people, right? Right? Help me here, Jesus. Give me some easier parameters to work within. And so again, Klein Snodgrass says, it's a question that ought not to be asked. He said, it's actually an embarrassing question. If this guy truly is an expert in the law, he's an expert, he knows the law inside and out, he really shouldn't be asking this question because he's seeking to narrow the conversation And so Jesus takes the bait, and he answers the question with a story. Again, typical Jesus working within this rabbinic Jewish tradition of saying, I'm not going to give you theological answers, but I'm going to show you a life situation. That's what Martin Luther King Jr. said about this. He said, Jesus defines a neighbor not in a theological definition, but a life situation situation. It's like Jesus says, I could give you rules. I could say your neighbor is this person, that person. Start defining terms. Start doing this and putting people in categories and saying, now if you know these things, it's going to help you respond. And Jesus instead, no, let me show you what being a neighbor looks like. Let me show you what it looks like rather than telling you some rules to follow. And so Jesus tells a story. It says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was when he saw him, He took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus says to the expert in the law, again, not looking for rules, but looking for character. What kind of a person are you becoming? He asks him, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and be like that man. The Jewish historian Josephus, just to give you some understanding of what's going on in this story, and then we're going to get into what does it look like for us to be neighbors. He he, he just explains that this road between Jerusalem and Jericho was about 18 miles long. And it's curvy and it's windy. And Jerusalem stands at about 2,500 feet above sea level. And Jericho is at 850 below sea level. So you're talking about a huge distance, windy road down through a valley. It's a dangerous road. Some people called it the bloody pass. So the setting of this story Jesus puts on this road is very important 
Because if you're the Levite and the priest, there's a couple things at play here. One, it's very possible that if you stop to help this man, it could be a setup. There could be somebody hiding around the corner. The guy could be playing dead. And if you stop, your life is in danger. You stop and there could be somebody waiting for you. This was a trick that people knew about on this road. So this isn't just some fictitious, Jesus pulls this out of thin air and people go, well, that's kind of interesting. This is a real threatening situation. The other thing at work for the priest and the Levite is purity codes. So they have personal safety and they have personal purity at risk here. If this man is dead, if they come within six feet of a dead body, that's how they've interpreted the laws. If they come within six feet of that dead body, they are now ceremonially unclean and they cannot do their priestly work. So they have some real cost to consider here. If I stop, will I be hurt? If I stop and this man is dead, now I cannot do my job. If this man is bleeding, they can't get his blood on them or they're also unclean. And so they see him, but they decide it's not worth it. It's not worth it for their own safety or their own cleanliness to stop. And then the Samaritan. We have the Samaritan. And what's so interesting, from whatever you know about Samaritans, we talked briefly about Samaritans a few weeks back with the woman at the well, about the Samaritan and uh, and Jewish tension that was going on. And now people were like, oh, Jesus, why are you talking to this woman? That in fact, Jews would, would spend an extra nine-mile route to go around Samaria to not have to go and be in touch with the Samaritans. Just before, if you want even more immediate context to see how crazy it is that Jesus uses a Samaritan as a positive example, in the chapter before, We mentioned this verse last week. So Luke chapter 9, starting in 51, it says, Jesus, as the time approached, he set his face to Jerusalem. Right? Last week we saw that he's on a mission to the cross. And it turns out he has to go through Samaria to get to Jerusalem. So he sends like an envoy ahead to see if they can have a place to stay in Samaria. But the people there, the text said, did not welcome him because they found out he was going to Jerusalem. So the Samaritans, knowing that Jesus and his crew are going to Jerusalem, said, we don't have anything to do with people going to worship in Jerusalem. We don't want anything to do with you people. No, you cannot stay here. To which Jesus' disciples replied, James and John, I love it that it's James and John, these guys who just had this experience with Jesus in the transfiguration, they say, Lord, Do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? That's their idea. Jesus is going on mission and he's going to die on the cross and you got to take up your cross and follow him. Let's start just putting fire from heaven on people. That could be cool. That's their idea. The Samaritan Jewish tension is so strong that when they're rejected, Jesus' own disciples are like, let's just get rid of these people. Let's do it now. Let's nuke them, Jesus. Come on. And now, a chapter later, Jesus tells a story where he says, yeah, those Samaritans you despise, let me use one of them as the positive example of the person who gets what it means to be a neighbor, of the person who's going to get to inherit eternal life. Let me use those despised, the people you want to rain down fire on, let me use one of them 
as a positive example. Are you gathering just how radical this text is? Why it's annoying? It's annoying. Because Jesus is saying you have to be like this despised person. You have to not just see a person in need. They all saw a person in need. Every single one of these people saw the man in need dying on the side of the road. We talked a few weeks ago about step one in in reaching out to our neighbors and reaching out to our, uh, our community is seeing people. Just seeing them, really seeing them. Well, all three of them did that. They saw the man. But only one saw, drew near, and then did something to alleviate this man's suffering. Only one, Jesus said, was the neighbor. See, this Samaritan, he wasn't afraid to get dirty. I imagine this situation that there's a man who's truly, if he's beaten and and there's a question of whether he's dead, this Samaritan probably quite literally got some blood on his hands. He got into the mess of this stranger's life. He takes this person and he puts this person on his own donkey. Now that means, you want to talk about risk in this road? Now a Samaritan is walking slowly an 18-mile road, 3,500 feet of elevation drop. He now is taking all of these risks, extending all of these costs for a complete stranger. And if that's not enough... He goes and spends his own money for this man's care. So it's cost him physically, and now it's going to cost him financially. And he even says he'll come back and see how the man is doing. He's going to return at a later date and see how the man is doing. It seems like what Jesus sets up here is that we're supposed to see, draw near, and act. Just seeing isn't enough. Well, I saw my neighbor. I had, comp- I had some pity on them. I wish, I wish the word here in the, in the text wasn't pity. The word here is actually compassion, and it's a different, different kind of word. In, uh, in Greek, it's uh, this word splankna, which is like one of my favorite Greek words. I told you last week I wasn't going to keep bringing up Greek words, but I'm doing it again today. Splankna is like bowels. So when we say we have a feeling in our gut, this is where we get this idea from, the splankna of compassion, like bowels of compassion. There's something in our gut that says we need to do something about this. I need to do something. And that's what this man is feeling. That's what is happening with the Samaritan. There's something where he responds because there's something within him that says, if I do nothing, it's not going to go well for this man. And bringing that up, Something Martin Luther King said, which I thought was just amazing in his sermon. What he said is as, as the first two approach, the first two people approach, the Levite and the priest, the question they ask is, if I get involved in this, what will happen to me? That's the question they ask. If I get involved, what will happen to me? My safety, my purity. But the Samaritan asks a different question. He says, if I do nothing. What will happen to him? It's subtle, but it's so huge. Especially in how we try to discern today who is our neighbor. Who are the people that if we see them, if we see what's going on in their lives, if we have seen it, and we say, well, 
maybe I could do something, but it would cost me, let's let somebody else do it. Or who are the people that if we realize, if we look at it, if we look around our world and we say, if I do nothing, what happens to them? What happens to my neighbor if I do nothing? It's an important distinction because the essence of following Jesus, of following, is action. It is action. That's part of uh, this, why my seminary professor said it's annoying because we can't just avert our eyes. Because if we're going to take this, this text seriously, if we take Jesus' words seriously, his description of what it means to be a neighbor, it means we can't just say, well, we saw, but I'm going to keep going. It means that if you want to be a neighbor, if you want to inherit eternal life, you have to see, draw near, and act. In essence, what, what, what he's saying here is it's, it's more than thinking, believing, or knowing it's more than thinking, believing, and knowing. It's allowing our thoughts, our beliefs, our knowledge to inform our actions. To actually do something about what we believe. Seminary professor said, We have torn thinking from being and being from doing, but what we are cannot be torn from what we do. He said this. This is what I thought was so great. The idea of knowing God and yet not being conformed to God is a source of scandal, one that Scripture always combats and that modern Christians must combat as well. And he ends this part saying, in this parable, Jesus seeks to make this man, this expert in the law, he seeks to make a man of knowledge into a man of practice, for anything less is not sufficient for eternal life. Reading through that this week, that really caught me that he's, he's, he's taking a man who thinks that through what he knows, that's how he'll be saved. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, I've done that. But, you know, who's my neighbor? Help me, help me narrow this. Give me some knowledge so I can narrow this down. And Jesus says, now let me tell you a story that says it's about how you put your knowledge into practice for anything less is not sufficient for eternal life. I want to go back a little bit to Martin Luther King's sermon and what he said, holding all this intention, really resonated with me as we face some tensions in our country and in our world with refugee crises and immigration conversations and just all of this, who is my neighbor? We live at a time where... Uh, there was a time as a kid where he said, who's my neighbor? I mean, the people I see, that's such a limited, limited group of people. But now, because of Facebook, because of uh, the internet, the people you see, wow, where do you draw the line? I mean, are we back to saying, well, I, I see these things, but what can I do? And it gets very, very much more confusing about who is our neighbor and what are we called to do and what can we actually do to respond to intense, crazy situations like Syria. What do you do with that? I mean, is Jesus saying those are our neighbors because we've seen what's going on? This, these are the questions that start to pile up. What do you do with that? It was interesting to me in King's sermon, he says this. He says, we cannot long survive spiritually separated 
in a world that is geographically together. He wrote that in the 1960s. I thought if we are, if we are so geographically together, it is crazy today. I may have had these crazy experiences a few years back where I was uh, actually, mid, our, our pastor's conference happened in San Diego. So I flew in early. I, I took the, the uh, shuttle, this, the, I almost said the space shuttle. I took the bus shuttle thing up to Santa Barbara to see my aunt and uncle. And then they booked me an Amtrak thing, so I jump on the train, and the train has Wi-Fi. I'm like, I don't understand technology, full disclosure. So I'm like, how is the Wi-Fi moving with me? It's moving with me somehow. And as I'm sitting there typing up some stuff and I'm on Facebook on my computer, this screen pops up where this, this student of mine who was serving in Afghanistan is like, hey, what's up? And I'm like, okay, I'm on a train in California and this kid who's serving in Afghanistan, all of a sudden we're having this conversation about how you doing? What's going on in Afghanistan? I don't even know how to ask these questions. Like, what's up in Afghanistan? crazy and we're having this conversation and today like we could have even seen each other four or five years later we could have popped it up and just said hey oh my gosh there you are show me around your bunk crazy so you talk about being geographically together and yet king says we cannot long survive spiritually separated that 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 phrase caught really caught my attention it says, in the final analysis, I must not ignore the wounded man on life's Jericho Road because he is a part of me and I am a part of him. His agony diminishes me. That really stood out to me. I don't have any answers on this, but to ask yourself, how does the suffering of others, when we see it and we don't know what to do about it, how does it actually diminish us? And when we see the salvation of others, it enlarges us. I mean, have you seen the joy of somebody whose life has been turned around by Jesus and it just makes you feel like you want to just, you, you could do anything because you saw this person's life totally transformed? And have you felt that feeling of when you've seen others make choices that have taken them down a road of suffering, how it's just taken life from you? Have you felt that before? I felt that before. When you want to help people make the right choices and they don't, and you go, oh, it's just like stealing life from me. But when somebody makes the right choices, oh, it's so joyful. But, but I think we feel that way with immediate connections. The way Jesus enlarges this definition of neighbor, do we feel that way with our global neighbors? Do we feel that way with people who are really not like us, but we start to see what they're going through, and we have to ask ourselves, how are we spiritually separated from these folks? I love that King said this is a spiritual issue. This isn't an issue of rules or law following. It's a spiritual issue of human beings in need, human beings we can see, who Jesus says are, these are your neighbors. If you see them, what will you do? Personally, I feel so challenged by this. And this idea that King says here is really what the Apostle Paul is writing about when the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the church in Galatia and he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. That's a radical statement for somebody to make in the first century. To say all those classes and divisions that used to say, you're better, you're worse, I'm the best and you're just scum of the earth, all of that is over, we're all just people. 
We're all just people. You're a part of me and I'm a part of you and everyone, Jesus is saying, is our neighbor and it's challenging. The good news for us is that Jesus modeled this for us. The reason we're here talking about this today is because Jesus modeled what it means to be a neighbor. He didn't just say this and then go like, yeah, I didn't really mean that. That's just some religious teaching. Jesus saw humanity, you, me. He saw everyone. He saw that we were dead on the side of the road. We're dead. We're, we're unable to save ourselves. We're looking for a lifeline. We've tried everything. For many in our culture, they've tried everything. They've tried to, to get saved through money, to get saved through positive thinking, to get saved by, by you name it, through yoga maybe. I don't know. They've chosen all these things to say there's something missing in my life and I'm looking and I'm looking and why do I keep ending up feeling dead on the side of the road? And Jesus said, I see you. And God the Father sent him to be near to us, to draw near to us, dead on the side of the road. He said, I see you and I'm coming for you. Not I see you and uh, that's pretty messy down there. Y'all are pretty messed up down there. How about you keep trying to figure it out for yourselves? No, he saw us and he came near to us when we were dead on the side of the road. When we couldn't do anything to save ourselves, he drew near. Jesus, as he walked to the earth, he saw those prostitutes that nobody else wanted to see and interact with. He saw those tax collectors. He saw Roman soldiers. He saw Samaritans, corrupt politicians. He even saw those self-righteous, bankrupt Pharisees. He saw them and said, I'll hang out with you. Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. Simon the Pharisee, let's have a meal. Nicodemus, you got some weird questions? Let's talk. He saw them. He drew near to them. Any type of person. And then, and then, as, as he really thought about what, what is the mission, he embraced the mission of going to the cross. He was willing, he was will, more than just willing, he wanted. This is the crazy thing. The author of the Hebrews, he said, for the joy, for joy he endured the cross because he knew what it meant for those of us dead on the side of the road. And so Jesus, when we consider Jesus, he, he had this amazing example of Jesus' life that he saw us. He saw humanity. He drew near and it cost him. It cost him his life. So in this season of Lent, we are invited now, this is what we saw last week, we are invited to carry our cross. We're invited to journey to the cross with Jesus. Sorry, I'm just like flipping through these now. I'm getting confused by my own thing. We are invited to journey to the cross with Jesus, to pick up our cross what does it mean to pick up our cross, to follow Jesus? It means that when we see other people, it means living a life that's not for us. When the very nature of picking up a cross is saying that I'm living for God and for others. So I'm not going to ask the question of when I see somebody, oh, what's it going to cost me? I've already considered the cost. I've already chosen to live a life that says I'm going to think about if I do nothing, what happens to them? In picking up my cross and following Jesus. Finally, Martin Luther King Jr., I want to end with this quote by him. Because really what's going on here is moving the conversation from just, okay, pastor, teacher, Jesus, give me some things 
to hang my hat on. Give me some rules to live by so I can do better, be more, go to heaven quicker. Sometimes we look at it that way. I grew up in the evangelical church. I know, like, I, as a kid, I just wanted the easy, like, tell me what to do. Tell me what's allowed. Tell me what's not allowed. Quickly, this was the thing that I hated the most about youth ministry, the sex talk. I'm just going to be honest. Because every kid wanted to know the question, how far is too far? So I was like, bad question. That's the wrong question. Y'all are trying to see how much you can get away with until you're You've done too much. And it's kind of at the heart of this question. Who is my neighbor? How much can I get away with and still be okay with God? Martin Luther King says this, says the ultimate measure of a man, because he says what Jesus is doing is changing this from what must I believe or do or think to what kind of a person are you? What kind of a person are you? So it's about character, not about obedience to a set of laws. He says this, The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. The true neighbor will risk his position, his prestige, and even his life for the welfare of others. So church, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, in the words of Christ, let us pick up our cross that we might go And do likewise. Be like the Samaritan who sees, draws near, and acts with compassion. Would you pray with me? God, as our world seemingly is shrinking, as we can know people on on the far side of the globe, it's challenging to ask this question, who is our neighbor? And, And Lord, maybe it's still the wrong question today, like some said it was the wrong question then. But Lord, we we want to know. We want to know what you would have us do as we consider the challenges of our world. And and Lord, just the challenges of our community and our family seem overwhelming enough. The challenges of loving the people we already know and interact with every day are challenging enough at times. So Lord, we cry out, help us. God, as we move to the table and as we imagine and remember and celebrate your sacrifice that was for all people, the way that you came to us, you moved near to us when we were that man on the side of the road. God, help us to move towards others. I pray, Lord, that as we receive communion together today, take communion together today, we, Lord, would be filled to overflowing that we might walk out of here to show your love to our neighbors, to every single person we see, come into contact with, that their lives would be changed. Lord, not by us and our niceness, our nice interactions, but by having an encounter with you, the living God. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.